I was Minister of Trade, and I was embarrassed one time when I was approached by a group of youngsters who said, we are startup, we've just secured a small contract, a company in the U.S. to do some software development for them. It's a small contract, $50,000, but for us, it's a big step. But the Ministry of Finance and the Revenue Authorities are texting it. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, the global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Today, I'm honored to have with us Mr. Joshua Setipa on this episode of Trade for Peace, Tech, and Entrepreneurship. With over 20 years of experience at the national, regional, and international levels working on economic development issues, Joshua is no stranger to the trade community. He was previously the Minister of Trade and Industry of Lesotho, where he served from 2015 to 2017, and also a counselor in the Office of the Director General. He was appointed as the Managing Director of the UN Technology Bank for LDC in 2018. Joshua, welcome to Trade for Peace. Thank you very much, Axel. It's a pleasure to be here, and I look forward to to this discussion and, uh, and sharing some of our experiences on how we can, from at least from a technology perspective, we can be able to, to contribute to what is a very important issue, which also affects a big part of our constituency, the least developed countries. Joshua, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. Now, I like to often start our conversation with a question I ask all of our guests. What does trade for peace mean to you? For for me, trade for peace means being able to use open trade to provide support for economic growth, for inclusive economic growth, for the multilateral trading system or uh, to create an environment that supports entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship also supports it supports stability, it supports incomes, it generates incomes for communities, which then also enhances the ability to provide for themselves. And a community that is able to thrive, that is able to be part of a growing economic activity, is less likely to be impacted or to participate or be derailed into activities that may destabilize any community. So where there's economic growth, where there's inclusive economic growth, there's also stability and there's also peace. Where economic growth is not inclusive, where certain parts of society feel left out, tensions rise, and therefore that's when you slide into instability, slide into into conflict. So trade as an instrument has a very, very big role to play in creating an inclusive economic environment that involves everyone in in the community. And so from my angle, that is how trade can be an engine for for, for stability, not just for economic growth, but also for peace building and an inclusive growth. Thank you, Joshua. 
Now, first, congratulations on your appointment. I know I'm late, but congratulations on your appointment as the new MD for the UN Technology Bank for LDCs. Mm-hmm. Tell me, what is the UN Technology Bank for LDCs? The UN Technology Bank is an entity, is a new UN entity that was established in 2016 by the General Assembly as a subsidiary organ of the General Assembly and operationalized in 2018 with a very clear and simple mandate. That mandate is to support least developed countries, 46 least developed countries, to enhance their capacity to use science, technology, and innovation to address all the socioeconomic challenges, everything from climate change adaptation to inclusive growth to food security. How can technology, science, and innovation be best applied or used by the least developed countries to bridge this development gap? The rationale behind the creation of the Technology Bank is also a straightforward one. The gap between the rest of the world and the LDCs is widening. If you look at connectivity, 20% of people in the LDCs are connected. That means that a significant part of populations that collectively estimated around 1.2 billion is still unconnected. So we cannot talk about the fourth industrial revolution if almost a billion people are still lacking even in the most basic of instruments uh, that technology provides today. So unless there is a dedicated effort by the UN system to mobilize resources, to build partnerships around supporting the LDCs, to helping them create ecosystems that allow innovation to thrive, then we will never be able to bridge this gap. And if we don't bridge that gap, it means attaining or achieving the sustainable development goals will not happen. We have less than 10 years left before the 2030 agenda ends. So unless there is this dedicated effort, we will not be able to meet it. And technology underpins every part of the SDGs, whether you're talking about access to education, access to clean drinking water, access to public health. And I think COVID has actually put into perspective the centrality of science and technology and innovation towards addressing these challenges. Without research and development, we wouldn't have the vaccines that we have today to deal with COVID. Without partnerships, and remember that 24 months ago, we didn't know anything about COVID. Nobody ever knew anything about COVID. But within these 24 months, We have over 15 vaccines that have been brought to the market through partnerships between the private sector and government. So partnerships are very critical to what the Technology Bank was established to do. Partnerships between government, partnerships between the UN system, partnerships with the private sector. So that is our mandate. Now, I would like us to talk about partnerships. I know uh, you've been a minister before, and so you you know the reality on the ground. Most ODCs lack the capacity in terms of human capacity, in terms of financial resources, in terms of the right policy instruments to mainstream science, technology, and innovation as a driver to tackle some of the issues you, you've mentioned in terms of healthcare, education, and whatnot. In the private sector, you have a growing private sector, particularly SMEs, that are coming up with new innovations to address some of these issues. How do you see the role of the technology bank in driving some of these uh, innovations for mainstream science, technology, and innovation in, in least developed countries? What are some of the projects you're working on to tackle some of these challenges? Okay, one of the main programs that the technology bank launched immediately after its operations uh, began in 2018 was what we call technology needs assessments. So we conduct these assessments in every country. They are a snapshot a diagnostic tool that we use to get a snapshot of what the situation in each country is. Because 
Yes, they may be all LDCs, but there are different at different levels uh, when it comes to technological development. At the top of the list, you've got LDCs like Rwanda, like Ethiopia, that are launching communication satellites. At the bottom end of the list, we've got countries that are still struggling with some of the most basic of issues, speed of internet connectivity. So for us to be able to say we understand what the challenges are, we have to undertake this assessment. We have to revalidate the country's national priorities and help them narrow them down to at least one, but maximum two, which we then start uh, mobilizing support, financial support, and building partnerships around the implementation through the second phase, which we call technology implementation plans. Right now, we have uh, this process running in 16 countries. By the end of the year, we hope to have reached about 30 countries. So when we go to the conference in January next year, we'll be able to showcase uh, what we've learned from this. So that's one. But while we're running these processes, we're also working in building capacity around ensuring that policymaking in the LDCs benefits from scientific input, that policies that are being formulated also reflect thorough, or at least a very clear articulation of what the scientific aspect of that is, that they are grounded in in research and that they they are much more sustainable. And what we are doing is working towards establishing academies of science where they don't exist strengthening them where they exist. Right now, as we speak, we have just launched four academies of science in Angola, in Malawi, in Lesotho, in the DRC. We've got about seven in the pipeline over the next five or six months, including in Liberia, in Sierra Leone, in Chad, in Niger, and so forth. And what we are also achieving through that is to demystify science. Right now, if you ask the first person you meet on the street in Monrovia and say, what comes to mind when you hear the word Academy of Science. He will tell you, or she will tell you that it's a group of very smart people locked up in a room somewhere, discussing very abstract (laughs) issues that have nothing to do with his daily challenges. Yes. So we need to change that because as long as it is seen as a preserve of only the smart amongst ourselves, then it means we're failing to fully exploit the potential for science to provide solutions to our most basic of issues on a daily basis, clean drinking water, you know, uh, for example, congestion, climate change. So if we can enhance the partnership between government, for government to see the academies of science as a resource for their policymaking, if we can use the academies to be champions for increased participation of girls in STEM, then we would have succeeded. So they have to champion that. They have to be they have to take the lead. If we can use the academies to promote the investments that we need to see on science diplomacy in the LDCs, to enhance capacity to produce a well-researched, articulated research that reflect inputs by scientists and researchers in the LDCs, then they would have succeeded. So that's how we are contributing towards building institutional capacity. Because as long as it's fragmented, if you go to any country today, you talk to the Minister of Agriculture about innovation, He has his own ideas on what innovation in agriculture means. If you move next door to the Minister of Health, he has his own ideas. So you've got the entire system running on parallel tracks without any national coordination. So if we can enhance coordination, we have improved the chances of having national strategies that are much more realistic, that reflect collective ownership, and that are much more effective in implementing than what is happening now. And of course, much more resource efficient. That is how we are, we are supporting capacity building to ensure that STI actually 
plays the role that it is expected to play in driving a socioeconomic uh, growth. Now, last but not least, we also, as part of this diagnostic uh, process we do, we, we undertake, is to also look at how can we enhance the ecosystem around innovation. If governments have not created the right policy instruments that facilitate startups, I was Minister of Trade and I was embarrassed one time when I was approached by a group of youngsters who said, we're a startup, we've just secured a small contract, a company in the US to do some software development for them. It's a small contract, $50,000, but for us, it's a big step. But the Ministry of Finance and the Revenue Authorities are taxing it. And yet you provide tax holidays for textile manufacturers and other foreign investors, but we are not getting any support. You're not even giving us support towards connectivity. So how can we thrive? How can startups like us thrive? If you've got an, in, an incentives package for investors in the manufacturing sector, why don't you have a similar incentive package for local startups? Give them, all they need is a desk, connectivity, and a roof, and they will do the rest. You know? So the, the, those are the things that, as governments, have to be taken into account to say, is the ecosystem around startups, around innovation, uh, the right one? How do banks uh, support startups? If you walk into a bank and you ask for, for a loan and they tell you that you have to bring your balance sheet, you have to bring security, how does a kid with a backpack provide security when he doesn't even have, have, have a cent to his name, but he's got an idea? Yes. Yeah. So how does government provide risk mitigation instruments? How can governments fund credit guarantee schemes that will help banks mitigate the risk and be able to provide lending instruments, solutions to startups? You know, so it's a range of, of possibilities and we're working with governments to realize this and also be able to, to ensure that these lead to much more structured support for startups. And then we can talk or we can say that uh, innovation is being supported. And one last point, there is always the risk that when you talk about innovation, we think it's innovation from the uh, north to the south, that right. only what comes from Europe and comes to Africa and others, that's innovation. Homegrown innovation, I mean, I've seen some of the most interesting innovations in the countries that we, we, we work with. I was in Lithuania a year and a half ago. Lithuania is positioning itself to be the leader in fintech in Europe or globally. But you know what they did? They realized that in Nigeria, there's a huge, a very strong hub around fintech. So they actually decided, okay, we'll tap into that. And they devised a special visa program just for yeah. Nigerians to bring yeah. in Nigerian startups to, to, to Lithuania to work with Lithuanian fintech companies to grow that industry. That for me is innovative thinking because they went and realized that yes, we're a European country, but what is being done in Nigeria is far more superior than what we're doing. So let's find a way to work with them. And that's what they're doing. And that's at least some of the creativity that is needed. And when you talk to policymakers, you've been in the trade ministry. When you talk to colleagues about finding innovative ways to finance innovation, science and technology, usually the first question is who's going to pay for it? Yeah. And I think this example you've provided, there's, there's one way to build that sector through mm. partnership with other governments. Mm -hmm. But uh, do you have any other examples of how governments are coming up with creative ways mm. of financing science, technology, and innovations in LDCs? I was recently in Khartoum in Sudan, 
And I visited an innovation park hub there and I came across some very interesting things that were being done there from robotics to design and all that. And I asked the same question, how are you funding this? And I was told one of the most positive stories to come out of that initiative is that the private sector in, in Khartoum has caught on. So if you're a manufacturing company and you want to improve your efficiency or productivity, you go to that center and say, how can I optimize my production lines? And the innovation center then works with you to improve your production capacity and they get paid. So the private sector is now actually the business and the revenue generated by providing solutions to private sector companies is what is now driving that innovation center. So if you can succeed in building that link between the private sector and the private sector seeing the innovation hub as a key part of how they can be competitive, then you've succeeded. And that is how, because government funding is not sustainable. Government funding is not what will drive the innovation uh, to the levels that we want. Yes, of course, government funding is important and should be enhanced, it should be increased. But the private sector, for, for us to be able to say that local innovators are going to grow and scale up, they have to be plugged in the private sector, local private sector. And the private sector has to see them as a source of solutions for their competitiveness. And that is how you fund it. So in Sudan is a textbook model of what of how it should be done. And very positive and encouraging stories. And in fact, when we talk about trade for peace, the stories that come with such stories are the ones that we need to showcase to show that despite the challenges that the country is going, going through politically, there is so much innovation capacity. Now imagine if there would be peace, sustainable, the level playing field with access to finance and all the other instruments in place. Imagine what we can do. You are listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. We will be right back after a short break. Welcome back to Trade for Peace. Now, uh, I would like us to talk a little bit about the role of the WTO accession process. As you know, there are several LDCs in the process of acceding to the World Trade Organization. What do you see as the role of technology and entrepreneurship in supporting the peace and economic uh, prosperity in these countries as they go through the reform process? 20 years ago, when a country uh, was joining or starting the succession process in the WTO, the focus was on market access for the goods industry. What, what concessions would the country be able to provide to the rest of the membership to be able to join the WTO? Uh, what concessions would it provide in the services sector, insurance, uh, banking, telecommunications? So that was the preoccupation at the time. But of course, the structure and the na and nature of, of global trade has changed. We now talk about uh, global value chains. We now talk about e-commerce. So we cannot talk about countries joining the WTO if they do not have the capacity to be able to fully exploit what the WTO membership means in terms of market access in, those, in these new sectors, which means countries have to be e-commerce ready. Yes. The accession process has to have built into it a dedicated effort to make sure that companies actually have the capacity to trade 
not just to be able to sell unprocessed products and bananas and cotton and everything, but to be able to trade across uh, digital platforms, to be able to take advantage of new modalities for conducting global trade. If you just focus on them signing on and making and signing on schedules uh, around goods and services and that's it, then the potential for the accession process and for membership of in the WTO to be able to drive prosperity and therefore drive sustainable peace building will be missed. I believe that the accession process is a very, very good opportunity to ensure that by the time the country actually signs on the dotted line and joins the WTO, it is ready to trade. And the trade landscape has changed, which means they have to be e-commerce ready. But we have to make sure that they have the instruments, the infrastructure and the institutional framework that supports all these new channels of trading. And e-commerce is at the top of that list. They have the instruments that would allow them to, not just to, to regulate, because regulation always sounds negative, but to actually ensure that these new channels of trade do not undermine gains in other areas. For example, as we mentioned, the connectivity also brings with it some costs. How do we minimize the cost, negative social impact that comes with connectivity? There are countries that have sensitivities around cultural issues. How do we manage that? How do we ensure that being connected to the global network does not undermine your, your cultural fiber, your, your, your social uh, framework? So all this work has to be part of this process in the accession, in, in the accession process. Otherwise, we will miss an opportunity for the accession process to contribute towards sustainable peace and long-term stability. And as you know, many of these countries are also going through the process of implementing the AFCFTA. Uh, what is your mm. view in terms of the technology implications and the role of technology in implementing the AFCFTA? If you look at the, the GDP of, of Africa, it is almost 90% SMEs. So unless the SFTA prioritizes SMEs, the dream of the ACFTA driving regional integration and growth in Africa will never be realized. So that's one. So any engagement on the ACFTA has to have at its core support for the SMEs, which means the multilateral trading system, if it's going to support regional integration in Africa, has to have tailor-made instruments that are focused on how do you get SMEs fully integrated into the global community? How do you get the multilateral trading system to be more SME-friendly? Mm. How do you get uh, the multilateral trading system? Even the way we calculate trade flows has to reflect the fact that in some economies, 60% of trade activity is conducted across informal channels. Yes. 60%. <laughs> when you look at regional trade flows, that is not captured. Because we calculate trade, we look at what, what the central bank gives us, and those are the, that's how we calculate it. But day-to-day -day trade is what happens across borders. And in most cases, those borders, yes, we know they're there, but on a daily basis, they don't exist because people still cross like they've been doing for the last 200 years. So unless the system aligns itself with that reality, then we cannot say that we have a very true sense of what is happening uh, in Africa. Now, technology has a very, very important role to play in fully supporting the realization of the ACFTA dream. I give an example of what happened over the last 12 months, 18 months. COVID-19 restrictions kicked in, economy is closed. 
Yes. So if you're a small businessman sitting in Maseru and your client is sitting in Zambia, you can no longer drive your truck from Maseru to Lusaka to pick up or to sell your products. You're locked out. You have to wait for those 18 months to be able to trade. So how many SMEs have commerce platforms? How many SMEs have access to market information and that will allow them to make decisions on where to buy and where to sell? So it means almost 60% of the of African economy was locked out. Yeah. So we cannot talk about ACFTA readiness if we do not create the infrastructure and the conditions that facilitate SMEs to continue to remain in trade, uh, trading. So technology has a solution. It can provide access to that information, can provide the platforms that are required for that. And this goes back to the point about getting countries to be e-commerce ready, getting countries developing digital strategies around trade. Because as long as we think that trade only happens physically by getting goods from one point to another point by a truck, then we're looking out a big chunk of potential uh, ACFTA uh, trade that we need to, to support. So another good example is trade finance. 80% of economic players in Africa are SMEs. 80% of those SMEs don't qualify for trade finance from the banking system because they do not meet the requirements for risk mitigation. They don't have assets. They don't have register right. balance sheets. They have nothing that a bank needs, a credit manager in a bank needs to be able to make their decision. Even their invoicing, when you talk about supply chain finance, even their invoicing, it cannot be relied on because you, you are not able to verify that it's, it's what it is. So imagine if we could be able to provide a bit of predictability through blockchain technology, where you know that the invoicing is secure. When a company comes and says, I need financing to be able to buy the stock because I have this contract to supply this product, you know that that is legitimate, that is solid, and you can take it to the bank and it will give you the security you need. And then you lend against that. If we can use blockchain technology to support supply chain finance in Africa, we unlock so much potential. Because right now, it is no longer a liquidity issue. It's an access issue. There is money in the system. There was a lot of money that was mobilized towards trade finance post-2008, the African Development Bank and others, and the WTO. I mean, the WTO joined with the African Development Bank to, to join the trade liquidity finance program. But if you look at utilization of that today, I haven't seen the figures, but I can bet you that 80% or more of applications from SMEs have been declined because they don't meet the conditions around risk. And one of the challenges is because of the lack of integrity in the invoicing process. And blockchain can provide that solution, can provide that integrity. And that is how technology can help enhance. And if you cannot increase the flow of trade finance in Africa, how can we talk about the ACFTA? Trade finance is the oil that drives trade. It has to be SME friendly. And I will add women who account for about 60% of cross-border trade activities. Yeah. How do you yeah. see technology playing a role in bringing them into the mainstream of trading in LDCs? We recently concluded a survey that we conducted in Bangladesh, in Cambodia, in Ethiopia, and also in Mozambique. And this was to look at 
access to finance for women-led technology companies. Small companies, whether you're selling airtime, the common theme that came out of that assessment was that despite commitments that have been made, despite all their good intentions, women, for a host of reasons, some of them cultural, some of them stereotype, they still struggle to access financing. So we cannot talk about supporting SME women. And then as you, as you rightly say, 60% of those SMEs are women-led. So there has to be a redoubled effort to come up with solutions around that and provide support to women. One very good example on how you can support women entrepreneurs, access to information. How do you use technology to provide market information? How does a lady who is going to farm cabbage her planting decisions are based on what? If she doesn't know what the, the spot price of cabbage is that day, if she doesn't know where the demand is that day, how is she going to make planting decisions? If she does not have access to cost-effective crop insurance, so that if tomorrow there's hail and that field of cabbages gets destroyed, she can go back to the bank and get compensation to be able to buy seeds and do that again. How can we say that we're providing solutions to SMEs and small farmers if the system does not provide for that. So technology can provide market information. Handheld, just on her phone, she can be able to get daily market information of what the demand is and what the price is so that she knows what to invest and she knows how, how much she needs to, to expect. That is how we can, we can be able to provide. Information brings transparency. Transparency levels the playing field. And that is how you elevate women traders at the same level. So what they cannot have in strength, they can have through information. That is as simple yes. as that. Yeah. yeah. Joshua, yeah. it's always a pleasure talking to you. And I would like us to conclude this conversation yeah. with a question I often ask all of our guests. In one word, what does Trade for Peace mean to you and why? Partnerships. Trade for Peace for me means partnerships. Partnerships because it is not a one-off thing that you tick off a box and therefore you achieve it. It requires dedicated, continued effort across all stakeholders. It's a multi-stakeholder effort. It means government, private sector, entities in and outside the UN system and globally to push in the same direction to support initiatives that ensure sustainability of solutions, sustainability of support measures and inclusive growth. Because as long as you've got parts of society that do not feel a part of what is happening, you'll always have tensions. So partnerships would be my keyword. You heard it, folks. Partnerships. That was Joshua Setipa, the Managing Director of the UN Technology Bank for LDCs. Joshua, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. Thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to participating again in another session. Thank you, Joshua. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in to today's episode, Trade for Peace, Tech and Entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Axel Addy. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.